Good morning. Good to see all of you. Back in January, C and several teachers were asked to go to a conference in Orlando. And so uh, C and I thought, well, we would make the most of that and spend some time in Bradenton, where she grew up several of her elementary years. Well, because of COVID, the conference got postponed, but our reservations did not. Uh, so last week, we spent some time in Bradenton, Florida, and that was so fun. We got to drive by her old house and her old elementary school and the church building where her dad preached for, I think, about three years and to relive some of those memories. It was really, really good. Uh, great trip. I, I'm glad to be back. I appreciate John Law speaking last week. Um, our plan was, I see the pose here today, our plan was, as we were there, to go by the pose and worship with them on the way to the conference and all that got thrown out. Um, but anyway, we're back and, and grateful for that. I know summer's a time of travel for some, but maybe not. I mean, this is kind of weird. Uh, open your Bibles to Exodus, uh, Exodus 18. That's gonna where, where we're going to begin today. I was also thinking about my mom and dad. My mom and dad met in Tampa, Florida. Uh, she was down there working, uh, with, staying with her aunt. My dad was looking for a job, and she, I think she was waiting tables, and she said he was quite a jerk. Uh, and we asked about that. I didn't know this until recently, and, and, and the truth is he, he was interested in her, so he just kept coming back with all these made-up orders. Anyway, uh, we're glad they met. Uh, we appreciate it. My dad grew up with 11 brothers and sisters in his family. And that wasn't unusual of that generation. Some of you is like, yeah, that, that was me, or you know, that was kind of normal for, for that time. Have you ever wondered how these large families were able to do this without all the modern conveniences and time savers that we have? They would have that many children. I mean, 11 is a lot. Some had even more than that. And, and again, that was very common. Today's families, we've got one or two, and we get stressed out thinking we can't even handle it. How did they make it? How did they survive with that many children in the house? Well, I believe wise parents learned the necessity of delegating responsibility. They had to, to survive. The four-year-old comes up to the mother and say, my shoe needs tying. And so the mother stops and ties the shoe. About an hour later, he comes up again, Mommy, tie my shoe. And the mother stops and ties the shoe. And, and after a while, when the four-year-old comes back, the mother takes the time and teaches the child how to tie the shoe. Now, that takes more time. She has to stop everything to teach him how to do that. But in the long run, it saves time. Now, delegation takes longer, but in the end, it's a time saver. But what about the mother with nine kids, 11 kids, 12 kids? What does she do? Little four-year-old comes up and says, Mommy, tie my shoe. Well, she's got a baby in her arms. So she says to the oldest child, maybe a 16-year-old Mary, teach the young one to tie the shoe. And so Mary does that. And again, that's another level, kind of advanced level of delegation. I think because children added to the workforce of the home when parents delegated like that, parents were able to see that more children were truly a blessing. I think about the first church I served out of college, Tupelo, Mississippi. Great experience. Their, their goal in hiring me as an associate was to, to train me to do a little bit of everything. And we did just that. And seeing I loved it. 
We are involved in so many things. I taught adult classes. I taught teen classes. I did the youth ministry. I was a part of the visitation program. I performed weddings. I went to all the elders' meetings and part of the children's activities. We, we did it all. See, and I lived next to the church building. So the young adults were just always at our house. And we loved it. But when we moved to larger churches, and especially when we had our own three children, we learned that we couldn't do it all. In fact, we learned the necessity of delegating and let others do that. And the truth is, churches grow more. In fact, it saves your own sanity when you can do that. I think of many of you as leaders in all kinds of organizations. It may be at work. It may be as a volunteer. It may be at church. It may be some secular organization. At first, you start out doing everything. You're a part of every bit of that organization. Maybe it's just getting started, and you have to do that out of necessity. But if you don't learn to delegate and to share the responsibility, you're going to limit the size of the organization and even guarantee your own burnout. It's just a fact of life. I didn't know it was called this, but I looked it up, Boyle's Law. You've heard of it. If uncontrolled, work always flows to the most competent person until he submerges. Isn't that true? If uncontrolled, work always flows to the most competent person until he submerges. That's why this final lesson about, from Moses, we're going to talk about delegating responsibility. Now, I know technically you can't delegate responsibility, and so I don't want to get technical with semantics, because I think we all know what we're talking about. It's when you assign tasks to others so that all the duties can be done effectively. And I want to begin by sharing this. The principle of delegation is encouraged throughout the Bible. Remember in the early days of the church, church barely gets started. Acts chapter 6, the apostles delegated work to those seven men. And they gave the reason, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's delegation. In Ephesians 4, he talks about God appointing and mentions several church leaders there. And he gives the reason to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's delegation. 1 Timothy 3 says a leader should be able to manage his own household well. That's going to help him to be able to manage the church of God. And then Paul admonished Timothy about delegation in 2 Timothy 2, 2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Let me share another example that I hadn't thought of, and maybe you hadn't as well. Proverbs 31. Remember Proverbs 31? The virtuous woman Sometimes women read that and think, there's no way I can live up to all that. This is a wonder woman, superwoman, with all the things that she does. Well, let me share this from Liz, Liz Curtis Higgs. She wrote a book, Only Angels Can Wing It. Let me share this excerpt. Women, just when we grind our teeth over the Proverbs 31 woman, who not only has to get up early to feed her family, but must give portions to her maidens as well, a little knowledge of the Hebrew comes to our rescue. The word portion doesn't mean serving of food. It means assignments, duties, tasks. In other words, she got up early to give orders. Then Liz wrote, that sounds more like it. She then shares the New Living Translation of that exact passage. She plans the day's work for her servant girls. And then she says, I take this as a biblical directive to hire help in the home. 
Ladies, aren't you glad you came to worship today? <clears throat> You're welcome. But that's delegation. And we see it throughout the Bible. And that's what Moses had to learn when he had led the Israelites out of Egypt. Now, he had convinced them that the true God, the one and only God, wanted to save them, to deliver them out of bondage. And he was able to do just that, help them to cross the Red Sea, and now they were free. But if this was a fairy tale, the story would have ended, and they lived happily ever after. But you know the story of the Exodus. It wasn't a happily ever after. Moses had all kinds of problems that just pounded on him from morning to night. Administrative duties, judicial duties, endless line of people, everybody, two million people. They were always coming at him. It was nonstop. And the burden became intolerable for Moses. He had to be on the verge of burnout. This is not what he signed up for, but this is what was his life. So God taught Moses a very important lesson through his father-in-law. So if you look at the outline, I want us to look at Moses' frustration, what his father-in-law Jethro instructed him to do, and then maybe we can make some lessons and take home and learn from this. So let's begin with Moses' frustration. Again, Exodus chapter 18, they're going to be on the screen, but you may want to read out of your own Bible. The source of the frustration, it starts in verse 13. The next day Moses sat down to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning to evening. Now think about that. Two million people, estimated, maybe as much as three so people were coming to him all the time. Now, these were folks who, their life, they're used to being slaves. They're used to being told what to do. They're not used to managing life and making decisions. They're used to carrying out orders. And so now everybody is coming to Moses. And Moses was very, very, very busy. Somebody said, if Satan can't make you bad, he'll just keep you busy. Moses was busy. So much so, he had to be stressed out. There's a passage in Numbers 11, 11 that kind of gives us a, a sense of how he felt about all this. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Moses was feeling it. Maybe he made the common mistake that we make, that we mistake busyness for being successful. We mistake activity for success or accomplishment. We think of busyness as being like a status symbol. If I'm busy, then I'm important, then people need me, then I'm doing good. We think the more successful we are, the busier we should be. The more people have to call me or text me or come to me for advice or to give permission. That means I'm important. Reggie McNeil wrote this to preachers. He said, success can kill you just as well as problems can. The mismanagement of one's personal life because of preoccupation of church members' needs can leave a minister spiritually and emotionally bankrupt. He's right. But he's not just right about preachers. I think anybody, you can write your own job in that blank. So when you get so preoccupied with everybody else, you can lose your own family, your own soul. Psychologists talk about encore mentality. Maybe you heard of this. So whatever the numbers were last year, the sales or, or, or the accomplishments, well then the next year has to be even better, which means you have to work harder and you have to work longer trying to top your success of last year. 
And it's almost an impossibility. And it can lead to all kinds of very negative consequences. You know this. I'll put a couple of blanks in the outline. Overcommitment can detract from your personality. It's hard to be kind and patient and good-spirited when you've got this time crunch, when all these burdens, when all these people are coming to you, you, you're not your best self. Overcommitment can endanger your personal relationships. It negatively impacts your marriage. It impacts your, your family. Even just your friendships. They all pay the price. Long days at work. Sometimes working, taking it home on the weekends. Maybe missed meals or ball games or special events. Or even if you're there, your phone is just buzzing all the time. And so you're answering texts and emails or on the phone. Your body is there, but you are so absent. You're out to save the world, or at least your company, or maybe your job, but your relationships can pay the price. And then overcommitment can also threaten your health. Again, you know this. Nelson Price, in his book, How to Find Out Who You Are, he gives a list of all these things that, that can be caused or, or made worse by this emotional stress asthma, heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, ulcers, colon cancer, headaches, alcoholism. And so if it doesn't cause them, it can, it can make them worse. It's constant busyness. John Strowman wrote, a life out of balance is like a tire out of balance. They both wear out quickly. And Moses' life in Exodus 18 was out of balance. And something had to happen. So Jethro, the father-in-law, steps in to give Moses some advice. Look at verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? Now I want you to think about these two questions that, that Jethro asked Moses that really anybody needs to ask themselves routinely. The first one had to do with priorities. What is this that you are doing for the people? What are you ultimately trying to accomplish here? What's the end goal? What are you about? I read about a son who took over leading the family business. And their family business was making drill bits. And he did well for about six months. And then he gathered a leadership team. And this is what he said. We need to change our focus We've been focusing on producing drill bits, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to produce holes. We need to start thinking about how to make better holes. Well, that raised a lot of eyebrows in the leadership team, but that company became the world leader in laser drilling technology. What's our purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? Moses' primary calling was not to be their judge and to answer all their petty questions and, and disputes among the people. His primary calling was to lead the people to the promised land. But here in Exodus 18, he's bogged down and he's missed the goal. And the second question had to do with personnel. Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning to evening? It seemed obvious to everybody except Moses that something had to be done here. All these people are all around you. Verse 15, Moses answers, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them known the statutes of God and his laws. I wonder if Moses 
was thinking what I think sometimes, and maybe you think sometimes, if you want a job done well, you better do it yourself. You ever said that to yourself before you launch into doing something? Did Moses think, I'm the one with the special relationship with God. He's the one who called me to lead these people. I have to do it. I'm indispensable. What was Moses thinking with all this? I think all of those are lies from Satan that too many of us believe. Somebody said, you've heard this before, it's amazing how indispensable I am when I ask for a vacation, but how insignificant I am when I ask for a raise. What happened to Moses happens to leaders at every level. They try to do it all. We try to do it all. One historian said that when Jimmy Carter, so detail-oriented, when he first came to office, he was involved scheduling who would play tennis on the White House courts. At some point, you have to let some things go. A leader who doesn't delegate can not only bog himself down, he holds others back as well. So Jethro gave some suggestions to Moses. Look at verse 17. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what are you doing is not good. You and the people that will certainly wear yourselves out for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice. Now, stop right there. Who wants to get advice from their father-in-law? I wonder if Mrs. Moses had gone to her dad, or maybe he just noticed how neglected everything else was. For some reason, Jethro is aware of the problem. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice. And Moses had a teachable spirit, and he heeded He says, and God be with you. First, he said, verse 19, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Priority number one, Moses, you got to have a right relationship with God. That's what being a leader is all about. Not just being in charge, but you being the person that you need to be. Who you are on the inside. The strength of character, honesty, integrity. And again, Moses, you're in this for the long haul. It was Mozart, the conductor, who said this, I can tell a good musician by the way he plays the rests. Some of us are not good at playing the rests. This pandemic has caused many of us to be forced into a slower schedule. Now, some of you, not so much. Some of you, your work has increased. But some of you have had a lot more downtime. So how have you handled this spiritually? Because it's in the quiet times when life is not just keeping us so busy. It's those quiet times when we can reflect and answer the question, how we're doing spiritually. That was what John Law's message last week was all about. How is your faith? If you're too busy, you don't have time to answer that. But in times of rest, you can reflect on that. Jesus accomplished more in three years than anybody But even he had the wisdom to get away from the crowds, to take time to rest, and to reconnect with his father. So priority number one, Moses, and all the rest of us, is your relationship with God. Number two, look at verse 20. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moses, you spend your time teaching. 
That's what he's saying. Moses knew the law, and they had all come to him for him to interpret for them. She's saying, you teach the law. But think about what that might mean. If he's teaching, that means he's not presiding. He's not judging. And he can be accused of not being approachable or not being available or not helping them solve their problems because he's out teaching, and I need somebody to help me with my problem now. No doubt criticism came. But the process was necessary for them to have trained leaders who can make a better system. Verse 21, but select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You know, I feel like I've got so far to go in learning how to be good in administration But here's something I've learned about successful delegation. 90% of successful delegation is not training, but recruiting the right people. Barry England will say to us often, hire well, manage easy. Am I right, Barry? Hire well, manage easy. You heard that phrase, and it's true. You get the right person, integrity, work ethic, honest, training, and they'll do great. But you get the wrong person even with amazing education and training and experience, and they can create all kinds of havoc. Jethro said to appoint those who fear God, trustworthy trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain. For the right person, the right heart, the right character, and they're going to do well. That's when your joy of working truly becomes the joy of the Lord. Because you know you're serving him. Look at verse 22. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So Jethro is telling Moses, you don't worry about the small stuff. They can handle that. You deal with the heavy issues. President Eisenhower told President Kennedy the day before his inauguration, you'll find no easy problems will come to the President of the United States. If they were easy, someone else would have already solved them. And that's true. Delegation of authority empowers and encourages the others who work with you and alongside you. Look at verse 22. So it'll be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. So as the organization grows, the job demands of the leader in a way should become easier, not harder. Now, the decisions get harder because the implications are are much broader. And so that's why they make the harder decisions. There's more pressure. This is what Fred Smith said in his book, Learning to Lead. People assume if I'm busier, then I must be more important. Maybe I missed something, but I always thought if you're successful, you should have more time, not less. That's why I used to call the wealthy the leisure class. Then he wrote, if you are somebody, then you are in control of your time. You know how to be in control of your time? You learn to delegate. You share the responsibility. You're not trying to do everything for all two million people. Jethro said to Moses, now the people are going to go home happier. They're going to get good decisions. They're going to be satisfied. It's going to be better for everyone. You know, somebody comes to me and they they are concerned about their marriage. Or maybe they've got a friend and they know who's in trouble with their marriage. I will very quickly try to express my concern for them and then recommend they make an appointment to see Barry England 
or counselor. Not that I can't give them counsel, but I would say if they go to Barry, they're going to get better counsel. And it also will free me up to do what I'm supposed to do in my giftedness. And so in that way, everyone wins. I'm not trying to put them out. I'm not trying to shirk responsibility. I'm not trying to to default them in some other way that would be critical. I'm trying to give them the best help possible. This is what Moses learned, and I'm learning it as well. Well, I'm going to close today with a series of lessons I think all of us can apply. They're on the screen. They're on the outline as well. Number one, effective leaders acknowledge limitation. Now, that is hard for people who are ambitious. I mean, even more so if you're young and ambitious. But the sooner you can admit your limitations, times when you just don't know or you don't know how to respond or what to do, the sooner the better. You've heard the slogan, I know two things for sure. There is a God and you're not him. We all need to know that. Learning to say yes at the right time. Learning to say no at the right time. Number two, effective leaders determine priorities. We often talk about priorities being God first, family second, and then job comes after those two, and we agree with that. But a leader must think about his priority as it relates to his sphere of influence or the people under her or or maybe the family relationships that they're responsible for. What are you gifted to do? How can you spend your time and talents most effectively? Have you heard of the, I think it's called Pareto Principle, or I've heard it called the 80-20 rule? 80% of your time should be spent on 20% of your priorities. And the way that goes is like this. If you've got like 10 priorities, and let's say for easy math, you give each one 10% of your time, that's not going to work well. In fact, you're going to not do well at all. Because the number one priority should get much more attention than the number 10 priority. That's why it's number one and number 10. Give an example of how that goes awry sometimes. Preachers have been surveyed. What's your number one priority? And, of course, the answer is preaching. That's what I'm hired to do. That's my number one priority. And they say, well, what do you spend most of your time doing? You know what's often number one? 60% of the time, number one administration. So much of their time is done in administration. Not what they're, not their number one, but what they end up spending so much of their time. We all have to ask, what is my priority? What's number one? And then spend your time accordingly. Folks, that's true for parents in the home. What's number one? A clean house? Or what I'm instilling in my child, the values of what they believe about God and themselves and family and what's right and honest. Even a CEO of a company, what's our priority? Number three, we train other leaders. A good manager gathers followers, but a good leader gathers leaders. He trains, empowers, and trusts them. The virtuous woman, she assigns tasks to her servant girls. And when you train leaders, there's no limit to what can be done. Now, the other side of that is that could be a threat to you, especially in a company. You train people, you pour into them, and they're talented. Next thing you know, they can become competition. Or they're working so hard and being successful can make you look less than. And that's a real threat. 
But how many successful head coaches started off being an assistant coach? Not just learning the game, but learning the skill and mastering the art. Someone poured into them and trained them well. I thought about this and I thought, you know, I've often been sad when we've had good, effective servant leaders here at West 7th who have left our congregation to go and preach at some of the area churches. You know, I think of Ben Diles and Josh Harden and Jim Selby and others because, oh, they were good teachers and they did great work here and then they left us to go over there. But that was me being selfish because in reality, they're doing great work for the kingdom. Train good leaders, and now they're serving well. Challenging, training, recruiting leaders, it must be one of our highest priorities. I know of an elder who took it upon himself to select two men. And he would meet with them routinely, just with meals, conversation, talk about things going on at church, poured into them over and over again, just routinely. It was only a matter of time until both of those young men became elders. Why? Because some elder was wise enough to understand this principle of delegation. Number four, effective leaders keep their ego out of the way. Must be said, because ego can be such a problem, so hard to do. Moses had to decide, do I want everyone needing me? Do I want to be the big cheese? Or do I want to do God's will? And get all these people to the promised land. See, here's the reality. If the mother lets that 16-year-old daughter teach the 4-year-old how to tie her shoe, that 4-year-old and the 16-year-old sibling, they're going to have a special bond and connection. You know, that kind of happens when somebody pours into you and helps you. And it'd be easy for the mother to look at that and go, wait, I, I, I want that. I want to be that for my child. I want to be the one that they, they come to. And so you have to get your ego out of the way and say, wait a minute. What's most important, mom, for your child to need you or for your four-year-old to mature and to learn to tie her own shoe? And for the 16-year-old to learn to teach someone to tie their own shoe? I have to ask myself, do I want the ego gratification of people depending on me, coming to me? Hey, Randy, how do we do this? Or where do we go to do that? Or am I okay with them going to someone else for those questions? And most importantly, do we want people not depending on a preacher or an elder or a church, but to learn to depend on God? Because that's ultimately who we should be pointing to. But here's the reality. It's a great feeling to be needed and wanted. It's a great feeling when people come to you for advice and help. There's nothing like it, and it makes you feel important and and helpful that you can be the one to to point them in the right direction or tell them what they, they need to hear. But I think about it like this. Parents of graduates, you need to remember this in a couple of months. When you're sending your child off to college, or maybe off to a first job away from home, or maybe walking your daughter down the aisle, tell yourself, this is what we've been training them for. This is what we've been training them for. 
We don't want them to call on us all the time because they can't make a decision. We want them to lean on the Lord and to be independent, mature, hating what is evil, loving what is good. The very thing that Jethro was talking about here. To lead in the home as well as work, we have to continually ask, why am I here? What's my job? What am I supposed to be doing? Am I here to make my children dependent upon me so they call me for everything? So I have this constant connection with them even as an adult? Or do I want them to be mature and independent and able to serve others? Am I here to make the business successful? Or to make sure I get the credit and my job is secure? Am I here to make others need me? Or am I here to build leaders? What is my priority? What does God want me to do? And then number five, effective leaders must accept ultimate responsibility. Notice Jethro did not say to Moses, Moses, you, you train these others. You, you delegate these positions of judge and arbitrator to, to be there for all these people. Because, you know, you, you, you did an amazing thing. You, you stood up to Pharaoh and you made all, all these people free. And so you can sit back and relax a bit. That wasn't the message. Even though, through, with God's help, Moses did some amazing things. Moses wasn't off the hook. Moses wasn't retiring and sitting back letting others have their turn, as we hear the phrase said sometimes. Moses was going to be there to be available for the hard cases. And a good leader struggles with the balance between trust and accountability. How much do you hold on to and how much do you let go and let others do it, even if they're going to do it differently than you would do it? Harry Truman had a sign on his desk. You've heard this, the buck stops here. And with the leader, that's the case. You can delegate all day long. But if they're under you in an organization, they're your children in a home, ultimately you are responsible for their decisions. The buck does stop here. He accepts the blame, shares the credit. A dairy farmer said, you know the hardest thing about milking cows? You know the hardest thing about milking cows? They never stay milked. Constant. At least twice a day. Some that go to automation, it's three, four, five times a day. You know something about people? They never stay led. We have a good shepherd. Our elders in the Bible are called shepherds. We all help pastor one another. You know why? Even the, the best leader of a company or the spiritual leader of a church, all of us need accountability. All of us need each other to make sure we're staying focused. Their ego is staying out of the way. They were pointing others to what is good and right. We need encouragement and prayer and to be challenged. Do you know who did this well? Jesus. Jesus took 12 unlikely men the rest of us probably wouldn't choose to be leaders he saw something in them and spent three years pouring himself into them this is the way of the kingdom this is a new way of thinking this is what it's going to be like here's how you respond here's what's important and he set up a system of accountability now two thousand years later we are those successors we've been given the same job the same task 
To take, to take the good news of Jesus to everyone? That's not just the preacher's job or the ministry staff's job or the elder's job. That's every follower of Jesus. That's our job. That's our task. Moses' goal, his assignment, was to take the, the children of Israel from Egypt and slavery to the promised land. Our goal, our assignment, is to reach the promised land of heaven and take as many people with us as we can. Now, this hasn't been the most evangelistic message necessarily, but that's where we're going. And that's what it's about. You're going to ask, what are we here for? That's what we're here for. We're here to get to heaven. And we need to be reminded of that. And this morning, if you've never confessed that you believe Jesus is the Son of God and had your sins washed away in baptism, we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Or if we can pray for you publicly, we're going to sing this song. But if you want to do it public, that's okay. We've started a prayer room just here to the left. We talk about this from time to time. After we dismiss, there'll be an elder in there, and they can pray with you, whatever the need of your heart. But if you need to come, won't you do so as we stand and sing?